You're listening to Inside the Aluminum Tube. This podcast has adult language and sometimes contains graphic descriptions of accidents and incidents, often resulting in death. If you're scared to fly, proceed with caution. Bank angle, bank angle, caution, terrain, don't sink, don't sink, glide slow, pull up, wind shear, wind shear, sink rate, pull up, traffic, traffic. Uh, Welcome back to another episode. This is an aviation history podcast, which looks at aviation disasters, accidents, incidents, and mere mishaps. I'm Shannon Baker. I'm your host. I'm the creator of the podcast series. If you want to know more about me and my qualifications, you'll have to listen to episode zero of this podcast, and you can learn all about me there. I always have a co-host who is not an aviation expert. Uh, Their role is to ask questions that will help you better understand what actually happened. Uh, My co-host today is Dia. Hi, my name is Dia Griffiths. I've been working in the film industry for the last couple years as a production assistant, and it's been pretty exciting and not a lot of time off, but exhilarating. That's what I understand about the film industry. (laughs) Oh, it's it's uh, nonstop. Can be kind of brutal. Yeah, but it's pretty cool to see your name in the credits on the big screen when it finally comes out. Okay, I get that. Yeah. That yeah. makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, my friends have been tagging me recently in the last couple of weeks because like two of the movies I worked on in the last two years have come out. And so everyone's like, oh, my God, I know someone. I'm like, if only you knew. Oh, boy. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> right? I think a lot of industries are like that. Oh, yeah. It's the secrets behind the industry that no one knows that are the most interesting. Well, that's what we're here to talk about, actually, is oh, the I'm secrets excited. behind the industry. I know you listen to some other episodes. So I have a really good one for you today. Oh, yeah. You know, this is this this one's a little different. This one's a little different. I always try to do uh, new and different things. Just straight air disasters don't do it for me. So <laughs> I'm always looking for the unique ones, and I look really hard for them. So all right, well, I want to know what you found. All right. So today we're going to be talking about an airline flight called Egypt Air 990. And I just oh want to confirm boy. that you have no idea what this is going to be about, right? Uh, no idea. Okay. I don't think I've ever flown Egypt Air. Uh, I don't know anybody. <laughs> I honestly don't know anybody who has, but they are part of the Star Alliance, which is part of the United Airlines. I think uh, I watched one of their huge jumbo jets land at one time. Okay. It was massive. So here's how we do. We start with the date, tell a little bit about the aircraft, then the company, then we talk about the incident and what's changed, and then we talk about how things are now. Okay? All right. Sounds good. Yeah. You ready to get started? I was born ready. All right. The date is Halloween. Nin- oh! 1999. <laughs> Oh, wait. Well, I wonder what I was for Halloween that year. 1999. I was probably like a spy you were, or a wizard. You were, nine years old? Yeah. I might have been a cat. I don't remember. <laughs> it was a good year, 99. My brother wasn't born yet, just the two of us. Okay. <laughs> just you and your parents? Just Me chilling. and my sister, man. Oh, you and your sister. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Yep. It was before the menace was born. All right. So, the airplane. So remember that I always post images on my Instagram page so that you can all see what airplane we're talking about. And I'm going to go ahead right now and show you a picture, Dia. Okay. What do we got? Halloween. Best day of the year. I love Halloween. Okay. You ready to see the airplane? I am. What do we got? Oh, look at that. It's really sleek with a straight red line. Is that an eagle on the, the tail? Or No, is that a pharaoh? Ra. It's Ra, isn't it? Like the, the god, Ra with the hawk's head? I guess it is. I... I Honestly, I'm going to have to look that up now that you brought that up because I'm not really sure. It's something. Yeah, it's, it, it's is nice. definitely, it is definitely something about that for sure. Okay. So you've seen the airplane mm-hmm. and that airplane is a 767-300. Okay. Okay. Is the number important? It is. The oh. seven, that's a Boeing 767-300ER, which means extended range. It's a long range, wide body. So it has two aisles, right? So it has uh, 
three blocks of seats, two aisles, one on the left, one oh, on the right. Oh, okay. I've been on those. It's They're massive inside. It has a max takeoff weight of around 400,000 pounds, which is really heavy. The 767 <laughs> entered service in 1982. It's Boeing's most successful wide-body model with over 1,100 sold. Okay. Um, it was developed in three variants, each larger than the next, starting with the 200, then the 300, and finally the 400. Production for the passenger version ended in 2010 when it was replaced by the 787. However, the 767 is still being produced as the freight model. So it's just be used for freight nowadays? It's still being produced as a new airplane, but for freight only. Okay. So you are they still it. working? Can you still fly on them? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. We're getting there. So the 767-300, <laughs> they're currently being operated globally, and it's a very popular jet for both cargo and passenger operations. They are currently flown by carriers around the world. I'm like probably U- ridden in this one. Yeah, like UPS, FedEx, Delta, American, United, Hawaiian, Air Canada, British Airways, Air France. So they do the big international flights. You get the idea, yeah. Okay. And the 300 is, is still being used. And in fact, I'm current and qualified on the 767-300. When I flew to Korea, this was probably the plane I was on because it was like three seats or... It might have been. Three, three, three across and then it was massive. So the event aircraft, like I said, is a 767-300 and it started flying with Egypt Air in 1989 at the time of the incident, um, or the event, really, it was 10 years old. All right, right around how old I was. Okay. There you go. Oh, yeah. You <laughs> guys age. were born about the same time. <laughs> it was one of the very first 767-300 models built. Okay. Uh, the airplane was named, and I'll probably get this wrong, but uh, Thamosis III, after a pharaoh from the 18th dynasty. Oh, nice. Man, why don't we have classy names like this for our airplanes? I don't know. I, they don't really name airplanes in the United States, but this one had a name, which is kind of cool. <laughs> So, I don't know. <laughs> Man, you fly in the Pharaoh's plane. Okay. Okay, so the company. Egypt Air started operation in 1933, originally called Misra Airwork, and it was founded by an Englishman named Alan Muntz. Of course. To, quote, promote the spirit of aviation among Egyptian youth. <laughs> Sounds slightly racist. Like, they couldn't do it by themselves. They needed an Englishman to do it for them. <laughs> wow. Orientalism, guys. Orientalism. It was only so this, but this company was so it's only the seventh air carrier in the world at the time. Okay. Initially, they operated really old and dangerous airplanes. Oh, like World War One, like bomber airplanes. Exactly. Made of paper. They were all British make mm. in the very beginning. Okay. Obviously, okay. we had a there was there a Spitfires in there. That's interesting that you say that because later they actually operated what's called the AT6 Texan in airline service. So that is a tandem seat. <laughs> like uh like red baron type of plane no so it was like a world war ii kind of fighter oh yeah with the guy in the back yeah and they operated that in passenger service and i don't quite understand that <laughs> it's like sure uber original that. ubers yeah it was, it's like if you could get an uber one i love that oh my gosh after world war ii the pilots held a strike to get new equipment because okay. they were, it was really dangerous. They had a lot of crashes. Mr. Yeah. Airwork was able to cheaply buy U.S. surplus military aircraft. And after the labor <laughs> issues re- were resolved, the Egyptian government bought Mr. Airwork and changed its name to Mr. Air in okay. 1949. Well, I'm glad they own it now and not the English. Well, then they changed the name again in 1957 to United Arab Airlines. And finally, in 1971, they settled, they settled on Egypt Air. But so this is, has nothing to do with like the United Arab Emirates. That's a different company that flies than Egypt Air. Yes, that's okay. a different. That's a different place, right? A different um, yeah. company. Um, but it does kind of have to do with that because they there was a an organization in the Middle East that was like Arab Airlines. 
Uh, and that that organization actually still exists. So we're okay. getting there. So over the years, they operated so many types of airplanes that I really can't list them all. <laughs> but mainly from French, US, and English build. But they also operated Russian airplanes. Okay. Well, so, you, you get what you can take. Yeah, exactly. There were so many types. It was pretty unbelievable. Egypt Air is the state-owned flag carrier of Egypt today. The airline has always been headquartered at Cairo International. They operate passenger service and freight to more than 75 destinations in the Middle East, Europe, Africa, Asia, and the Americas. Okay. Egypt Air is a member of the Arab Air Carriers Organization, which is kind of like what we talked about a second ago. Yeah. They are a member of the Star Alliance, which was started by United Airlines. Although state-owned, Egypt Air operates under special rules that allow it to operate as a private air carrier. It receives no money from the Egyptian government. Interesting. A few things that I found interesting, though, about Egypt Air is in the middle of 2012, a group of flight attendants asked for the right to wear hijabs as part of their work uniform. So they weren't allowed to wear them before? No, they weren't allowed to wear them before. So they asked for the right to wear them. The request was granted and they became the only airline in the world allowed to wear the hijab as part of their uniform. That's interesting that they weren't allowed to wear it before. Like, were they trying to emulate European lines and didn't want to offend European customers? I'm not sure. I think that they just wanted the right to do it and Hmm. they had not had that. And so, I mean, I think it's fine. Well, kudos to them. They also are the only major carrier that does not serve alcoholic beverages on aircraft. That makes sense. They offend a lot of customers. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So... You get a little bit of an idea about Egypt Air and a little bit about the airplane and stuff. Do you have any questions so far? No, let's do it. Okay. So let's talk about the crew. The captain. The captain was a fat (laughs) 57-year-old guy. (laughs) However, he was notably an excellent pilot. And he had worked for Egypt Air for 36 years. You don't got to be thin to fly. No, not at all. He was known to be quite religious and he would often pray on the flight deck. Okay. I mean, it is what it is. His first officer... He was a 36-year-old man who was also quite uh, known to be quite skilled. He was flying his last leg before his wedding. Oh, he, is he going to make it to the wedding? I can't spoil it. Oh, man, the suspense. Don't make me cry, Shannon. Okay, so since the flight originated in Los Angeles with a stop in JFK before heading on to Cairo, this was a double augmented crew. What does that mean? That means it had one captain but it had three first officers on board. Okay, so they could rotate. Right, so they could rotate. So this leg from JFK to Cairo was over 10 hours. It required a full relief crew. Okay. The crew was made up of two, what we call IROs, international relief officers. So basically two other first officers. Okay. They would typically switch about four hours into the flight or so, and then they kind of just got a schedule and swapped around. All right, makes sense. So let's talk about the two IROs. Okay. Okay. These guys sound interesting. Yeah, they're just first officers. So the first IRO, his name is Gamil. But his nickname, so from here on out, we're going to call him Jimmy. His nickname <laughs> is Jimmy. Okay. All right, Jimmy. That's what everybody calls him on the flight deck. Jimmy was f- a 59-year-old first officer. He declined the upgrade to captain many times because he liked his senior schedule. He was mm-hmm. described as a big, friendly guy with a reputation for telling jokes and enjoying life. He was also three months short of 60. And at the time, that was mandatory retirement. Oh, man. So he almost had it made. Almost. He was unusually old for a co-pilot, but he was hired in his mid-40s after career as a flight instructor for the Egyptian Air Force. He didn't upgrade to captain because his English wasn't great, and he thought it might be an issue. Okay. That's fair. 
This guy was also handpicking his trips. And the you can imagine that he was picking the best flights. He was the most senior first officer at Egypt Air. So was he more experienced than the pilot in terms of like flight and age? Uh, that's debatable. Okay. I think he was probably equally experienced. Okay. Because he came from the Egyptian Air Force. He probably he knew how to fly airplanes. He didn't. His training he just records. Didn't want, I get it. Yeah. His training records look good. He just didn't want to. Yeah. Why? He has it good. Yeah. He's I mean, happy. he's making he's making good money. He's picking his trips. He's got a good quality of life. Man, he's chilling. So yeah. he's good. I mean, he's got it made. He was known to be only moderately religious. He was married, had five kids. The youngest was a 10-year-old girl who had lupus, but she was recovering. Okay. Um, she was responding to treatment really well and recovering. He had a nice house. He had a vacation house too. And he had just bought a car in New Jersey. Okay. My God, this guy's got it totally made. I don't blame him for so, not upgrading. So the car is in the cargo hold on this <laughs> flight. He's bringing it back with him. Yeah, he brought it and he, he, he bought the car in New Jersey, bringing it back on this flight with him. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about the other IRO. Now, this is the unusual one. The other IRO was the 767 Fleet Chief Pilot of Egypt, of Egypt Air. Okay, what's chief pilot mean? That means he is a management pilot. Basically, he is the highest ranking pilot, and he is a decision maker, a hi- somebody who hires, fires, etc. Oh, So no he's pressure. the chief pilot. No pressure. The only person that would be more, more like have more management power to him would be the what's called the system chief pilot and then the director of operations. Okay. So there's only a, there's a chief pilot above him which is called the system chief and then the director of operations. So he's not important. So the 767 fleet chief. So he also made decisions for the fleet. Okay. So this guy was 52 years old. On this trip he's acting as an IRO, which is a relatively low-ranking pilot. But he was a management pilot, like we said, and he's a captain on the 767. He's a senior captain, but he's not a captain on this on this flight. So he's just chilling as a first officer on this flight. And and even an IRO, which is sort of like the guy who sits behind the... So he's not even flying the airplane, really. Yeah, he's just chilling. He's, and He's going to take over for a couple hours. Right. Okay. The fleet chief was also not using a standard crew rest procedures. He had his own first class seat. <laughs> it kind of okay. just raises some questions like what is this what guy is doing he, as an yeah. IRO and what is he doing right what's he doing what what the heck is he doing right <laughs> in addition to the cockpit crew there were 10 flight attendants on this flight who were attending to 203 passengers okay so the crew is a bit unusual right so let yeah. me let me sum it up for you real quick a very sil- senior skilled captain the most junior fo mm-hmm. also very skilled the most senior FO acting as an IRO, which is a little unusual, well-liked, close to retirement, and the 767 fleet chief pilot, who is acting as an IRO, even though he's a captain and he has his own first-class seat. God, this sounds like one of those movies where they just like get a bunch of random people together and all hell breaks out. So how's the setup so far? That's weird, right? <laughs> yeah. It sounds weird. And it's Halloween. Don't right, forget, it's Halloween. It's yeah. Halloween. But you, do you have any questions so far? No, I want to know what happens. Okay, so the events. Egypt Air 990 pushed back from the gate at 1.12 a.m. from JFK. It's a really late flight. It's late. The 36-year-old first officer said in Arabic, in the name of Allah the merciful, the compassionate cabin crew take position. Okay, I, yeah, I get God's blessing. I get it. 
Okay, you didn't fall for it, but I was baiting you a little bit. What? What did you want me to say? <laughs> it's not unusual for them to for them to say that, right? So Egypt is a very Islamic country, it's very a, religious. It's a state religion. It's a religious-run state, right? Yes. Yeah, so that makes sense that they right. would have that. Now they're notoriously religious because one of the hijackers from 9-11 was Egyptian. Yeah. Um, and now we know about Arab Spring and stuff. Mm-hmm. But so this is essentially the equivalent of saying something like, Jesus, watch over us. Yeah. We would bat we would bat an eye here because we separation of church and state. But if it's a state run or a religious run state, most people aren't going to notice, right? And we've been conditioned over the last two decades to view Muslims as a threat. Oh yeah, they're- and so like I said, I was kind of baiting you, but you didn't fall for it. And <laughs> I don't think they're a threat. That's just propaganda. But we're not going to go there. It's fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this was not unusual. Okay. Okay. So let's get back to the events. At one twenty a.m., Egypt Air nine ninety took off with the captain as the pilot flying, Mm -hmm. popped through the low clouds at 1,000 feet, turned out over the Atlantic. It was a clear night. The crew talked to New York Air Traffic Control. They flew their assigned route. Okay. Normal, normal. Yep. During the climb, several flight attendants came up to the cockpit. The crew was served some food. The chief pilot came up for a chat. The system chief, right? The guy that was flying first class? Yeah, the first class. He came up to the captain? He just came up to the cockpit for a chat, and then he left. Only 30 minutes into the flight, and not even at cruise yet, Jimmy, who's the 59-year-old first officer, yeah, comes up to the cockpit and asks to relieve the primary first officer, the 36-year-old. Okay. And Without thir- being called, he just Yeah, came he just up. comes up. And he comes up and he says, and the 36-year-old first officer is kind of resistant. He's yeah, like, he just started. And, and Jimmy says, you mean you're not going to get up? Will you get up, please? Go and get some rest and come back. That's a quote. Uh, okay so he's exacting his power over this guy to leave and this he is. is odd he is it's a little odd yeah it's a very unusual move because like i said normally the crews go four hours or so yeah it's right? not even an hour in but he kind of bullies um the young fo into taking his break and and the captain's okay with this and the captain's okay with it yeah yeah the captain doesn't say anything okay. so jimmy took over uh the the other first officer's um spot in the right seat Another young young FO who was riding as a passenger came up and you can hear Jimmy kind of picking on him in a fun way um, for wearing some like hip new red clothing. Okay. <laughs> so this guy leaves his pen in the cockpit. The, the, the guy that was up there in the red clothing. Yeah. It, it, and this guy is an important. He's just a, he's a rider actually. We don't, he's not even part of the flight crew. He's a young he FO for Egypt Air, but he's just riding. Along. Okay. So we don't really know anything about him. He, we just know he comes up to the cockpit and to say hi to pen. the guys. And then he leaves his pen. Okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Jimmy chats with the 57-year-old captain about how young the new hires are, and they're heard having a laugh. So Jimmy and the captain had known each other for a long time, and they could be considered old Make, friends. Makes sense. They're the same age. They'd been mm-hmm. at the company been for- flying for a long time. Yeah. Jimmy had been working there since his mid-40s, and the captain had been there for 35 years. Yeah. And so they knew each other. Okay. They'd flown together many times. At 1.44 a.m., the Egypt Air 990 leveled off at 33,000 feet, autopilot on. Okay, so they hit cruising. Yep. We're only like 45 minutes into the flight. Yeah. Thus far, everything was very routine besides... Besides the... The, the crew change. The crew... Oh, jeez. Yeah. At 1.46, Jimmy said to the captain, here's the quote, Look, here's the first officer's pen. Give it to him, please, God spare you, to make sure it doesn't get lost. Wait, he just kicked the captain out of the cockpit? The captain replied... Excuse me, Jimmy, while I take a quick trip to the toilet. He ran his electric seat back. We can hear the buzz of the electric seat, right? And Jimmy says, 
Go ahead, please. The captain looks back and says, before it gets crowded while they're eating, I'll be back to you. Wait, so this guy relieved the first officer and now he's asked the captain to go return a pen and the guy's like, yeah, I'm going to go to the bathroom. He was so, like, I'll, basically, he's, I mean, like, what we get is you can infer that he's basically like, yeah, I'll do that. And while I'm back there, I'll take a pee. Okay. So now this guy who shouldn't be flying is up there all by himself. This, is that going to be a thing or is this just like a red herring? So Jimmy is alone in the cockpit. Yeah. I can't answer that question for you. He's not supposed to be there yet. So, yeah. So he's the relief. So he is not, he was supposed to come into the flight later, but now he's the first officer and in a way like you said he's kind of kicked the captain out of the cockpit too the captain's in a gone way. the fir- original first officer's gone right and jimmy's alone yeah so at 147 new york center gives the aircraft a frequency change which basically means they just hand it off to a different controller mm-hmm. so jimmy can be heard acknowledging the frequency change but he never checks in with the next controller oh, oh geez so they're just like flying with no they're not talk- there's no one they're just there right so basically he goes okay contact you know, contact the next controller on this frequency. And Jimmy says, okay, we'll contact him, Egypt Air 990. And he doesn't. But he doesn't. Oh, no. Okay. Jimmy, I liked you. What are you doing? At 1.48 a.m., Jimmy says something quietly, which nobody has been able to translate. A three-syllable <laughs> word with the emphasis on the center syllable. And this is all recorded? They record this is the cockpit? cockpit re- voice recorder. So it's that- an ambient microphone. Okay, so it's always recording. Yep, it's always recording. Okay. Like I said, it has an emphasis on the center syllable. It sounds something like hydraulic. Interesting. And it's this is them trying to translate it from yes. Arabic to English? No, this is just both countries trying to understand what it said. Okay, so they don't know if he was speaking English or Arabic or They French don't know. They think, a lot of people think he said hydraulic, but, that's, but nobody has been able to, in truth, nobody knows and okay. nobody has been able to translate it. They run it through many voice computers and stuff to try to figure it out like a magic spell they can't well then we hear him speak something in arabic okay and the translation is i rely on god then we can clearly hear his electric seat move forward and makes a whir sound so he basically moves into the and jimmy's still gone or um so the captain's still still gone. gone and jimmy's there by himself so now he's moved into the essentially the flying position right he's moved up to the controls okay jeez then we can hear the click where he turns off the autopilot and he turns off the auto throttles. And so he, how long has this been? It's been since um, the captain left. Like yeah, five so minutes? the captain leaves at the captain leaves at one forty six. This is one forty eight. Two so, minutes. Okay. Wow. He does not wait around. No. So the autopilot is turned off. The auto throttles are disconnected, and nothing happens for four seconds. So the airplane just sails along for four seconds with no auto throttles, no autopilots. Wait, so he just turned. So it's still the engines are still on. Oh yeah, yeah. He just he turned. Just auto manual. throttles basically are like autopilot for auto throttle for the throttles. Okay, so, so he they just, just the, adjust the power based. Everything's on, on manual now. So he's yeah, he's okay. just reverted to manual. Okay. Oh boy. Now, so four seconds. <laughs> then the control column is pushed forward quite hard. The airplane starts a steep descent over the ocean. Yep, registering almost zero Gs. So he just like dives. That's what he does. Towards the Atlantic. Then slightly less than zero Gs, meaning that that would float anyone or anything that wasn't buckled in. Oh my God. So the captain is in the toilet floating? (laughs) So we hear a few thumps. That's good that you said that. So we hear a few thumps at this time. And we think think that it's probably people hitting the ceiling. Oh my God. 
So there's just like alcohol in the air and people are just like... Well, they don't serve alcohol, remember? Oh, right. Okay, so coffee. People yeah. are just like float, like... Oh yeah, if you're not bu- if you're not buckled in at this point, <laughs> you're at, you're you're fl- you're floating out of your seat. So Jimmy then says, "I rely on God four more times or five more times." Is he quickly, trying to crash the plane? Quickly, like, but very calmly. Okay, so do we? Okay, this is probably spoiling, but do we know like is this part of like ISIL or one of the Al Qaeda or something, or is he just acting alone? I will say that that is th- that no, he is not part of any group. So he's as far as we know, he's acting. He's alone. acting alone. 16 seconds after shoving the nose over, the captain somehow makes it back up to the cockpit. How did he... This is like one of those space movies where he's like pulling himself along. Most likely, that's what he's doing. He's like, yeah, he fought himself back up to the cockpit. How is this not a movie yet? And he yells, what's happening? What's happening? As the airplane passes through 30,000 feet. And this guy's fat, right? So he's like a big man pulling himself. Oh my gosh. But I want to note that he descended 3,000 feet in 16 seconds. Oh so 3,000 feet in 16 seconds, that equates to roughly five seconds per 1,000 feet. And it normally takes 30 seconds to oh go 1,000 feet. Jeez. So it's like people, then you're still conscious if you do this or is... Yeah, yeah you, you are, but the nose is pitched over really far. Okay. Like it's wow. steep. Okay. <laughs> okay. So people are just like holding on in the back and he's diving. Right. So then the captain yells again, what's happening? <laughs> to which Jimmy calmly replies, I reply, I rely on God. Okay. Okay. So, mm. so now the air- character for Jimmy. So now the aircraft has reached its maximum certified speed. It's pointing. 40- oh, so it's like it's hit the highest it should be going. Correct. Ever. It's pointing 40 degrees nose down. The captain <laughs> grabs the controls and says, what's happening, Camille? What's happening? Then the elevator surface is split. What is, wait, what is the elevator surface? Okay. So when you pull back on the controls, uh-huh. the tail the controls on the tail tip toward the up position. Oh, okay, those are the tip flaps like in the this. back? That's the tail. Yeah, that's the, called the elevator. It tips up and it forces the nose up. Oh, and those broke? No. I'm saying that they split. So oh, the, so one went up so and one went down? So the left one is pointing up now and the right one is pointing down. Okay. So the system <laughs> is designed that way in case the surfaces are jammed, mm-hmm. that you would still have one. However... Jimmy's pushing forward, and the captain is pulling back. So the plane doesn't do it. Is it just keep going down? So it basically enters a stasis. Yeah. So it it really doesn't it doesn't push forward more, but it doesn't (laughs) come back. Okay. Okay. How far above do we know how close they are to the water at this point? Like, are they? Yes, we're getting there. Okay. So after several more seconds into the dive, the airplane is descending now at nearly forty thousand feet per minute. Jeez. And a standard climb rate for an airplane is about 2,000. Oh, my God. Okay. So it's... They're covering 1,000 feet every 1.5 seconds. <laughs> like going to collide with the ocean in any minute. Then the powerless airplane breaks a sound barrier. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> what? The captain reaches out. And this is a huge plane. Huge. The captain reaches out and he grabs the speed brake and he deploys it. Is that like the emergency brake in the car? So you just grab and pull. It it does feel like an emergency brake in a car. Like you grab it like that and you pull it back. But it's just to lower the speed of the airplane. We use it all the time, just in normal descents, things like that. It's just it. You ever look out on the wing and you see the the oh yeah it yeah. starts to rumble a little. You look out and you see the there's a bunch of boards that are like kind of sticking up at an angle. Yeah, on the top of the wing. That's the speed brakes. Okay. So. 
The captain reaches out. He grabs the speed brakes. Okay. Now, the ailerons, which normally move in the opposite direction of each other, they both actually tip up. So that's so they're the they're the surfaces on the ends of the wings which cause essentially a twisting motion to allow uh-huh. the aircraft to turn left and right. Those go up? They both go up. That's just not supposed to happen. So So this, it starts spinning? No, so this just indicates that the wings are under so much force from going so fast that the hydraulics can't hold the controls in the right position. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> but the descent slows a little bit. Well, that's at least one good thing. Now they're passing 18,000 feet. Jimmy sees the descent slow. And he freaks out. Well, he's still pushing forward on the yoke. Okay, not his desired. He, he wants to go fast. He, he, <laughs> I mean, we think that his intention is... <laughs> this is an intention. To push... Well, I mean, he's still pushing forward on the control, so you can see it. Okay. You're Jimmy! A little, you're a little anxious over there. <laughs> I want to know what happened. <laughs> so Jimmy reaches over. Wait, so where are the other the other, the other IFOs? Have they are they trying the, to get in? The IROs, no, IROs, they're not. They're, we don't know. We don't. We know. don't hear them on the on the CVR, and we don't know the position in the cockpit. Oh so okay. So they may be f- trying to get in or whatever, but we just don't we don't know anything about them because we, we have the CVR, the cockpit voice recorder. Okay. Let's see. So passing eighteen thousand feet, Jimmy sees the descent slow down, but he's still pushing full forward on the yoke. Mm-hmm. So Jimmy reaches over. And he pulls both engine cutoff switches to the off position. So now that it's just free falling. The captain sees Jimmy do this and says, what's this? What's this? Did you shut the engines? <laughs> then the, then words fail the captain and he stammers, get away in the engines. Shut the engines? And Jimmy replies, it's shut. Wait, so is the captain, is this like he's caught on to him at this point? Or he thinks that Jimmy's still trying to like save the plane? They, they don't know. They don't know. Okay. The captain is also heard saying, pull with me, pull with me. Okay. It sounds like he doesn't quite suspect that Jimmy is responsible for this. I think the captain is startled. Okay. I think the captain really just doesn't, he's not processing. No, the plane is about to crash. Yes. And he's just going, I have to save this. Yeah. Right? Okay. So 10 seconds later, the plane goes dark. The power cuts off. We lose the rest of the CVR and the flight data recorder. Okay. Because there's no more power. Okay. However, New York Center is really close. So we do know what happens next by looking at what's called the primary radar return. Okay. So they've got it on radar. Right. Normally, the airplane is transmitting data through something called the transponder. Mm -hmm. So it tells air traffic control where it is and the altitude and speed and all that. Okay. But when the power is out, we get only what's called a primary return, which is basically the radar signal bouncing off the big aluminum tube. Okay. Does so that like make in sense? a submarine where it's like, beep. Yes, beep, exactly. And it's beep. it's just reflecting off of it. Yeah. So, so they just know where it is and that's we it. We can see it. We can see its altitude, but it's not the most reliable means of. Okay. Okay. But we do know this. The captain wins. He stops the descent at 15,000 feet. And that 400,000-pound airplane has so much fo- forward momentum that the captain climbs the airplane, the powerless 767, over 10,000 feet up, back to nearly 25,000 feet. Oh, my God. And it's still without power? Yes. So he just, like, suddenly is dropping, and then it's, like, climbing? And then he's, he pulled the controls, and he's climbing. So we don't know what happened in the cockpit, but now he's climbing up. And he, it's still powerless? Yes. But he has so much momentum that it climbs that he's able to climb it to 25,000 feet. I hope he gets power back feet. on because it's only going to last for so long. The airplane levels off and starts making a turn toward land. Okay, so he's like, we got to go back. It turns north. Yeah. Back towards New York? Toward like the Boston area, yeah, toward New York. Okay. Yeah. 
So, but and the we criti- still don't know. There's no communication. No, there's no power actually. But the critically damaged airplane doesn't make is it. Is so damaged from the overspeed that the left engine separates from the wing. What? The airplane breaks up. It explodes. It breaks up in flight. It doesn't explode. It just breaks up. The air, the engine comes off. <laughs> okay, so now there's this this piece of metal just hurtling through space. So basically what happened is the airplane was so overstressed by the breaking the sound barrier and the huge pull and all that that it just broke apart. Yeah, it couldn't handle that stress. It's not designed It's for not that. designed to break the sound barrier. Yeah. Right. So Egypt Air 990, the 767-300 lands in the Atlantic Ocean, 60 miles south of Nantucket, Massachusetts, in water only 250 uh 250 feet deep. Wait, that's not very deep. No, it's not. All 217 occupants on board were killed. No! 100 Americans, 75 Egyptians, 21 Canadians, and the last seven were from Germany, Zimbabwe, Syria, and Sudan. No, that poor guy didn't get to get married. That's right. Aww. Wait, how, so I guess they, they couldn't make an emergency landing in the water because you can do that, right? Yeah, but in this, air, in, this, in this case, the airplane broke up. Okay, so they were probably I mean, just flung out of the airplane when it broke. The left engine ripped off. Oh, and we actually can see the primary radar return of falling, separate falling pieces. So we don't know what happened. We have no idea what Jimmy was doing. In the last like one minute, we don't know because the airplane climbs back up to 21,000 or 25,000 feet and hangs there for a minute, a full minute. And we so know we that don't know that that wasn't north. Jimmy. We don't he know. He could have just been like pushed up and back down again. We don't know. Yeah, oh, we don't God. know. We don't, we have no idea, but it hangs there for a minute and then it breaks up. Do we know anything like his family? Did they like come out with a statement like so we're getting there so let's let's (sighs) so let's talk about the aftermath so the low so the wreckage is located in international waters so the burden for investigation falls upon the egyptian government um they do nothing well they didn't have the resources okay so they call the ntsb which is the u.s ntsb to investigate initially the egyptian press and other press reported that a bomb had exploded but no one found any evidence of that Mm -hmm. okay so when they pulled the wreckage from the water they didn't see any kind of like bomb blasts or, or any kind of marks that would indicate, indicate that there a was bomb. a fire or a yeah. bomb on board. Okay, so no fire at all. The CVR and the flight data recorder, so the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder, were c- recovered almost immediately. Okay. Then leaks about the content hit the press. 19 oh, days geez. after the crash, Jimmy Hall, the NTSB chairman, Held a news conference. A different Jimmy. Yes, Jim Hall. Okay. Jim Hall. He's the okay. NTSB chairman. Because our Jimmy's dead. Yes. Okay. Um, the NTSB chairman held a news conference to address the initial findings. He was culturally sensitive. He was responsible. And he was very strict about the need to maintain an open mind. Okay. That's good because this think, is pre-9-11. So. Right. And also, I just feel like we, we kind of lack that in well, our, we do. In our we modern do. politics. But after 9-11, it would have been received very differently, too, I'm sure. Yes. So Jim Hall, he does not say anything about suicide. He does not say the word Arab, and he does not say the word Muslim. Okay. I respect He did that. not even say the first officer's name. Okay. He said, and I quote, No one wants to get to the bottom of this mystery quicker than those investigating this accident, but we won't get there on a road paved with leaks, supposition, speculation, and spin. That road does not lead to the truth, and the truth is what both the American people and the Egyptian people seek. All right. I mean, this was still very, it was still a hotbed of problems happening. I think a Kuwait 
the whole Kuwait oh, issue sure. and all the right. oil so issues. So we'd already been in the Middle East for a while. And that was probably smart on him because very quickly people would have spun that as like a terrorist act or a d- d- government or something. 100%. But he was really sensitive. <sighs> well, good for him. But at the same time, a top Egyptian investigator said, quote, my country would reject any suggestion that the crew was to blame. Okay, well. So much for being impartial. Well, they tried. Someone did. Mm -hmm. So in December 1999, the NTSB turned the investigation over to the FBI. Oh, the FBI. The NTSB was convinced that this was not a crash investigation, but a murder investigation. But the FBI, so they're thinking it was an American-involved thing? Because that's American soil. No, they are convinced that Jimmy did it. So Okay, but they're going to investigate because the Egyptians won't. They won't, yeah. So the Egyptian government declined to recognize or acknowledge any potential wrongdoing on the part of the crew. Mm, okay, even while, though they've got recording of this. While the rest of the world was reporting that Jimmy did it, the Egyptian government and news media continued to dwell on that three-syllable word we talked about uh-huh. that nobody still to this day can decipher, and they blame the disaster on a mechanical error. Okay. Well, I mean... It's pretty so much it all based off of sound and the flight data recorder. It could have possibly. I mean, I see where they're coming from. It could have been, and he could have been doing his best to try and do well, it. But okay, I'm going to disagree with you here, and here's why. Because we can look at the flight data recorder, and we can see the control inputs okay. from the left side and the right side. Okay. We know that Jimmy was pushing forward the whole time. All right. And anyone trying to write the plane would not have been doing that. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Because he was a seasoned enough pilot. He should have known how to write the plane if it did dip. Yes. Okay. He also turned off the autopilot and That's the autopilot. And then he also cut off the engines. Very true. And cleared the entire cockpit of... So, okay. yeah. All right. So, check this out. <laughs> oh, no. So, why did he do it? I thought we didn't know this. We don't know for sure. But these are speculations? No, this is why the NTSB turned the investigation over to the FBI. Um, we don't know for sure, but the FBI, they formulated some... Hypotheses? Some motive. Motive. Okay. Okay. The reason we think Jimmy did it is the most shocking part. Jimmy didn't leave a note or anything, and by what we can infer, he hadn't planned to do to do this. Was remember unplanned. he had a remember he had a car in the cargo hold. Yeah, and, and he was going to retire in what like six months? He three said? months. Three months. Yep. However, some things did happen during this trip. Remember that the chief pilot was on board in a weird, sitting mm-hmm, in a first class guy. seat, act, acting as an IRO. Uh huh. We're pretty sure that he had yelled at Jimmy for doing some pretty abhorrent shit. On the plane or just in life? In general. So the chief pilot banned Jimmy from taking any more trips to the U.S., which was his favorite destination. Okay. So sources say that Jimmy was a man facing ruin in his career and his personal life in the light of a series of allegations of sexual misconduct, which included repeatedly exposing himself to teenage girls while in L.A. and New York City, propositioning hotel maids, and stalking female hotel guests. Okay, so this guy's life was going to be pretty blown up when he got back. So this was new, like he yelled at him while in Jersey? We don't know exactly when he did. But fairly recently. This is supported by repeated complaints filed filed against Egypt Air due to Jimmy's bad behavior. Why are all the like nice guys turn out to be, like the funny guys turn out to be the worst ones? Jimmy had a long history of this behavior, and the evidence really hints at that. It hints that the chief pilot took this trip to catch Jimmy in the act, and we are pretty sure that Jimmy got caught. 
Because on this trip, we're pretty sure that the chief pilot told Jimmy that as a result of his illegal and egregious sexual activities, he was done. That he was no longer going to fly transatlantic routes for the rest oh. of his career, which was just three months, but still. But he could have just held out for three months. Now this is now this gets kind of interesting. A former Egypt Air captain told the Los Angeles Times that the chief that the fleet chief had called him and told him about the situation. So pilots do that. They call other pilots. They have friends, whatever. Okay. He said that the fleet chief told him that he told Jimmy, this is your last flight. And the captain added, quote, and I think Jimmy's attitude was, this is your last flight too. We don't know exactly when or where the chief told Jimmy the news, like you asked. It could have been on the ground in LA. It could have been in New York. It could have been on the airplane. That still just seems like really, like if you're mad at someone, you're going to crash the whole plane. That seems, that guy needed help. People are crazy. Ah. So this is the motive that the NTSB found. And this is why the NTSB turned the investigation over to the FBI. That and obviously the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder. And Egypt is still like, no. Yeah. So the NTSB uncovered that data prior to calling the FBI and a high ranking member of of the NTSB investigation team is quoted as saying it was likely more revenge against the chief than just a suicide. Oh my God. But like he took it out on the entire plane of he like did. 300 passengers. The NTSB <laughs> and FBI requested training records and disciplinary records from the Egyptian government. And they didn't give it to him, did they? They didn't give it to him. No. Oh my God. No records were ever received. Are you surprised? Come on, Egypt. Yeah. So <sighs> to this day, we don't know. The Egyptian government has not acknowledged that Jimmy intentionally murdered 216 people and himself. What about his family? Like, is it, would it look bad on the family? Is it like the family under protection? Does, cause not that I know of. We don't know. Okay. I feel like that would... Mm. The Egyptian government maintains it was a mechanical issue. Well, okay. Okay. Good, good on Egypt, right? Yeah. And they have such a slick plane. <laughs> All right, so what changed? All right, so that's the story. What's changed? What's changed? Okay. It's a whole lot more dangerous to fly now. So this is pretty easy. Pilots are no longer allowed to be on the flight deck by themselves. That's, I think we're allowed to do that before. Sure. It seems like a pretty. Yeah. Okay. So I can't say that this is a fix for issues like this, right? Yeah, I mean, he could, obviously he could have done it with them still there if he really, really I wanted agree. to. But it's a preventative measure. But. The potential for this post-September um, 11, 2001, it may have gotten worse because although a flight attendant may come up to the flight deck in the absence of the other pilot, the cockpit door is now ballistic. Yeah. Right? We know that after 9-11. And the other pilot would struggle to get back in. There are ways for pilots to re-enter the flight deck and we're trained on how to do that. It would have been hard. So if it was None ballistic. of them are instant. Okay, so we can get back in the cockpit. Like, if I get locked out of the cockpit, I know how to get back in. Yeah. But it's not instant. It takes me a little time to do it. So now it would have been harder for that pilot to get back in. Yeah. In zero gravity. Right. And imagine... But but a flight attendant would be up there nowadays, right? But they don't know how to fly a plane as Correct. Well as and also, pilot. you know, you could get a five-foot-tall, small flight attendant and this big... Yeah. First... I mean, they're not going to be able to do anything. So, although... Okay. It happened and it was easy to happen then. It's easier now. It may be easier now. Okay. So this could happen again. Oh, great. I don't want to fly anymore. Thanks. Could it happen again? It could. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. I feel like this. I feel like this. I remember this. Or So that's the whole story. What do you think? 
Well, it's terrifying. But I feel like I heard about this on the news. You probably did. I mean, it was a big deal, right? It was a big deal. It probably crossed my world at some point. Like, oh, another flight went down an Egypt Air flight, but I was nine or something. Well, that's just slightly terrifying, but it doesn't happen very often. (laughs) No, it doesn't. I'm probably more likely to get hit by a bus, so. Yeah, you probably are. Yeah. But interesting anyway, right? So that twist at the (sighs) end where you just go, why did he do it? We don't know. We don't know. So we never will know why Jimmy did it. That's the truth. Do we, and they don't, know any, they don't know anything about him. Like they don't have any psychiatric records on this man or was he on drugs of any kind? I mean, he they, couldn't have been on drugs if he... Oh, I did say, there, there. I did note in there at some point that he had actually bought Viagra because he liked to get samples of Viagra in the United States to bring it back and give it to his cheaper. friends. He, got, he brought it back and gave it to his friends in Egypt. But here's the thing. Jimmy had that Viagra on him. I just... It's pretty clear that Jimmy wasn't planning this. Yeah, that's he had a like car in the car. cargo hold. He bought Viagra to give to his friends. He bought gifts, essentially. He was going back to Egypt. He didn't plan this. Yeah, that's the thing that's really weird about it is why would he literally throw away? Even if the guy was like, unless unless he was going to get his entire retirement fund and all of that revoked, and it was complete destitution. So to he him. wasn't. So he was only getting banned from, from flying the- to the U.S. Yes, it doesn't make any sense. He could have just hacked it out for three months doing little flights, and then he would have been done. Right, but Jimmy was offended. He was pissed off. He'd been at Egypt Air for a while. I feel like Egypt won't talk about it, but I feel like there's probably more cultural underlying things that we don't understand as Americans. I think that's true. There's probably some some deep shame attached to it. That's what I was going to say. I think there's some shame culture there, too. There's probably, yeah, there's probably something we don't understand. I agree with that. I'm like, I just hack it out for three months, but. I don't know, that may not have been, like, family ruin may have been more shameful than... Right. And so he's got to go home to his family. He's got five kids. He's got a wife. Mm -hmm. And he's got to go home and tell all of them that he's not allowed to fly to the U.S. Yeah. And flying long international flights is also a a little bit of a blow to his finances because he was handpicking these flights because they also paid the most. Yeah. I think that's what I think that I really I think that's what happened. I think Jimmy just lost his. Do we shit. know if he was bipolar or anything? We don't have any. We have so, none of that. So the Egyptian, so the Egyptian government never released any records. So we just. I'm sure they know. I'm sure they have like an investigation that they did, and they know more. Well, we way know more than we do that there were complaints against him filed because they were filed in the United States. Yeah. So we know about the the like sexual complaints, basically the exposing himself to Which teenage girls. Which probably was happening in Egypt too. And I guess that it had actually been happening for a long time and that the chief, the the system, the 767 fleet chief was like, this is, we're done with this. I'm, I'm tired of getting these complaints. And you can imagine that that would be shameful. Yeah. When he got back. Yeah. So there's a level of psychopathy here that that would come into play, right? Wow. That's a really sad story. Yeah. It's a sad story for sure. Thanks. Now my, my day is just going to be like down. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right so you want to hear my sources yes so my sources the official ntsb cockpit transcript and the ntsb final accident report wikipedia as usual the new york times the la times uh the atlantic magazine the guardian the encyclopedia britannica online and politico magazine all right those are reputable yeah i try to use reputable sources um but this one took me about six hours to write oh, okay. so not too bad again where is this movie all right, Dia. Um, thanks for being with us today. That's our whole podcast. What do you think? Well, thanks for having me. It was a 
wow, my day is going to be interesting after this. All right, cool. So um, I didn't mean to ruin your day. but uh, <laughs> no, no, it's all good. I like a good story. That's the end of that. Thanks for being with us. And uh, maybe uh, and hopefully you can come back and be on another one. Yeah, anytime, Shannon. Cool. Thank you.